0: Kick the Jukebox is so much fun. Kyle and Louie are number one. Kick the Jukebox, kicking a rhyme. Talking about music all the time. Oh, yeah! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Kick the Jukebox. I'm Louie Perlman. And I'm Kyle Gordon. Oh, my gosh. Kyle, hey, how are you? Your apartment looks great. You're growing a little beard. Thank How's it you.
1: going? I'm, I'm trying. the The beard is my big mission for quarantine. You know, uh, I it's it's uh, famously patchy, uh, multicolored. My mustache is very blonde and wispy, like a fourteen year old Scandinavian boy. Uh, but you know what? I'm I'm trying. If I can, you know, give it a few months. The stakes are low right now, so let's see what we can do with it.
0: Yay! I'm proud of you. Thank you so much. We kind of switched facial hair. I
1: was about to say, yeah, you, uh, your famous chops are gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, my uh, my trademark mutton chops, but I'm growing them back. Uh, It's happening. Yeah, Uh, I just had to get rid of them because they were getting unruly, and this allows me to shape them again. Yeah, but uh, I'll post a picture on our Instagram for all of our fans (laughs) of our switched facial hair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) so everybody can see it.
1: (laughs) Right. You 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 gave me your facial hair, and I uh, allocated them allocated it across my face in the least efficient uh and least appealing way possible. yeah
0: in like a thin and <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, i spread my troops too thin
0: yeah totally it's almost like you sort of like were painting it on <laughs> but you had to mix your paint with like a little too much water right right right
1: <laughs> and also it's like it's blonde my my mustache and like my soul patch is bright blonde so Mm -hmm. in like on camera and like from far away it looks as though i don't have any facial hair there so if you look at me it looks like just i have like a disgusting like neck beard slash um what's it called uh what's this called when you just have um
0: a chin strap chin strap yeah yeah it's like a neck beard without the neck beard
1: yeah, it's like yeah, yeah it's because neck you're, beard you're, strap combo.
0: You don't have a neck beard going on right now, really. A little bit. Yeah, a little bit. That's not really a neck beard. A neck beard yeah. is literally yeah. on your neck. That's that's, a, true.
1: that's true. That's That's true. a that's different reassuring. thing.
0: That's It reassuring. is. And we need reassuring things in this yeah. in this time right now of uncertainty. Um, here's a question that feel free to be like, "Oh, I need some time to think about this." Has there been anything you've been listening to this week music-wise that like has just been nice for you, or of comfort to you, right now? Yes, definitely.
1: Um, the um, I so we the last episode we did uh, we did a Sade episode,
0: yeah, which and was really that, fun. Yeah,
1: yeah, really fun. And af- after that, so we kind of to connect A to Z. Uh, you know, the genre that she's often been considered as kind of part of the quiet soul. Uh, Quiet storm, excuse me, um, genre, and then that genre is named after one of my favorite uh, sort of R and B records of the '70s, Smokey Robinson's "A Quiet Storm," and then I've been listening to that, and then that kind of got me into, you know, the algorithm pushed me towards Minnie Riperton's "Adventures in Paradise" because
0: that's think, a great album. I like that album. Yeah, a lot. I had
1: never really heard it before, so I have "Perfect Angel," and everyone's heard "Perfect Angel," but "Adventures in Paradise" is amazing yeah so that has been my big fun like discovery uh like put it on repeat album for this week
0: that's awesome
1: and it's a very soothing album too
0: yeah yeah and like kind of dreamlike and yes yeah she's she's interesting and the people that she worked with are interesting we should maybe do an episode on her hell yeah at some point yeah
1: yeah um I have, uh, yeah i have um perfect angel on vinyl but that's kind. Of, I before Adventures in Paradise, I hadn't really listened to much else of hers.
0: Mm-hmm, Unfortunately, sure. she
1: didn't live very long, so we didn't get enough music from her. But yeah, we didn't
0: get a, we didn't get a lot of any Riperton. But what we got is of a very high quality. Exactly right. Cool. How about you? Well, you know, we're gonna do a whole episode about this in the next little while, but we lost Adam Schlesinger this week. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I've been doing a lot of listening to Fountains of Wayne alone mm-hmm. and crying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And he's, he was the primary songwriter for this band, Fountains of Wayne, who I really liked we Were sort of a early 2000s power pop group. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then also had just a prolific career. He wrote the music for the movie, That Thing You Do.
1: Uh, oh, my God. One of my pro- favorite movies of all time.
0: He produced the new Monkeys record, Good Times, yep. which is... Which we've talked about. We have talked about it a little bit. We've talked the about show, the, we? the Christmas album that he the produced. Album, the right, Monkeys right, Christmas right. album that he also produced. And we have talked about that on the show. And that, Good Times, is a more classic Monkeys record than several Monkeys records. Like, mm-hmm. classic Monkeys records. Like, he really knew what he was doing. And he was a really good songwriter and a really, really smart musician. So uh, that's made me very sad. But uh-huh. speaking of the Monkees, yesterday, April 3rd, they released a new live album that is a recording of their tour from last year uh-huh. that is just Mike Nesmith and Mickey Dolan's, And then uh-huh. just a very, very good backing band, uh-huh. including um, Mike's son, Christian Nesmith, who's a Good musician and oh, cool. Mickey's sister Coco Dolans, who's one of my faves. Nice. And uh, it was produced by um, Andrew Sandoval, who is uh, there. Uh, who actually, Kyle, you've met before. Yes, yeah, so at a record the fair. record fair. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's the Monkees tour manager and a really mm-hmm. wonderful producer. And in my opinion, it's a career highlight. I think that the album recontextualizes their songs in a very, very sort of classic big. Modern way, uh, and it's. I think it's. You know, I think it, if you like, uh, you know, old school '60s songwriting, it's. Uh, it's a really good album to get into. So yeah, that's the. So I was been listening. To, was listening to that yesterday, and just really blown away by it. But we're not going to talk about the monkeys today. <laughs> for once in this podcast history, <laughs> we're going to go back to 1985 and talk about the Oingo Boingo record "Dead Man's Party." Yeah, baby. Yeah. So this was one of my choices. Yes. Because I have a really lovely personal relationship with Oingo Boingo. I've been listening to them since I was in my early teens mm-hmm. when it was very uncool to listen to them. We're right. talking like mid-90s. Right. So this was Nothing music-
1: could sound uh, less More- cool in the mid-90s than uh like avant-garde '80s, uh, big '80s pop.
0: Yeah, it, it really and and at the time they weren't considered particularly cool as well by a lot of their contemporaries. Right. True. So it's really interesting that um, I gravitated towards this this band, um, and of course I found this band through their frontman Danny Elfman, and I was a big geek and was a fan of his uh, film soundtracks at the time. Mm-hmm. And his, this, this, this really surprised me the way this music sounded because it doesn't sound as atmospheric and as lush as his film scores sound, Mm -hmm. his, his, these big orchestral, big booming scores. This sounds sort of lush and complicated in a, in a whole different way, in a way that's a lot more economical, in a way that's, I think, a lot more precise.
1: Mm -hmm. For sure.
0: So yeah, so story of this band, if you don't know, this band started as a theater troupe in the early 70s in 1972 called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo. They were actually named after a um, a plot element of an Amos and Andy episode <laughs> where Amos and Andy formed a club called uh, the Mystic Knights of the Sea. <laughs> so that's where this comes from. The name comes from. Founded by Danny Elfman's big brother, Richard Elfman. And uh, Danny Elfman's, uh, so Danny Elfman's big brother, Richard Elfman was, you know, a smart artistic uh, malcontent (laughs) who traveled uh, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s to France and uh, did some work with some French surrealist theater troops out there. Uh, And that's where he met his future wife and founding member of Mystic Knights, Marie Pascal Elfman, (laughs) uh, which is cool. Um, And then he decided he wanted to go back to uh, Los Angeles, where he grew up and form a similar troupe uh, in LA. And Danny Elfman, who was always the primary uh, music director for Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo, had just come back from like a 10 month trip through France as well. And then onwards to Africa Uh where basically he was playing a lot of violin and studying percussion.
1: Uh
0: And, uh, definitely, I think the African influence of Oingo Boingo, like can't be understated. And it's interesting because this music I think is looked at as being very, very white, (laughs) You know, um, however, there were always a lot of people of of color involved with with Oingo with Oingo Boingo and also a lot of uh there's also a lot of latinx band members. Yes, yes uh as well. So it's really very representative of sort of the melting pot that was LA in the seventies.
1: Yeah, and I I kind of see um in that sense like a, a a pretty distinct comparison to uh like talking heads in that way of having like a deep Um, respect for and influence by um, soul and R&B, but also like world, like African music. Um, But then taking that and filtering it through, you know, kind of sanding off the edges and like making it very um, precise and like, uh, I don't want to say cold, but like, um, I think precise is the right word. Like, you know, making it a little less uh, like, a, a, like a little less smooth and more like rigid and jangly and precise, um, which kind of gives it its its own unique flavor. It's not like, um, whiting it up. It's like, it becomes this own weird thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's a lot of his influences put into a blender, but then also like take, you know, filtered through his like very sharp musical mind. Yes. Uh, and there's a complexity to, uh, all of the Oingo Boingo stuff that is really fascinating, because Danny Elfman wasn't classically trained, uh-huh. and I think a lot of the work that he has done, both or- you know, for his orchestral scores and with Oingo Boingo, sounds like it comes from a more classical element. You know, there's a more classical element to it, uh-huh. and it's interesting. You know, you bring up Talking Heads. I've asked my my pals in Talking Heads about Oingo Boingo before, and if they like them. And from a lot of sort of the more like arty new wave set, because also I've heard this from Devo as well Mm -hmm. uh, over the years, they all found Oingo Boingo to be a little too slick. Yeah, And and I think there was a bit of a, a, uh, there was a lack of connection to Oingo Boingo from the other, from those other bands mentioned mainly, I think because Oingo Boingo, I think, always thought in cinematic terms about what they were writing about. And I think that mm-hmm. so much of the content of what they're writing about and the, and the, the musical content as well comes from the, like the cinema influence comes from the, mm. the LA, the LA yeah. film influence. Um, sure. And we'll talk about that when we get into actual songs. Sure. Uh, another influence that I think is really interesting and that I've been researching lately for my latest musical that I'm writing that's heavily influenced by Oingo Boingo is that the Elfmans grew up in a area of LA called Baldwin Hills. Uh-huh. And Baldwin Hills is, is very, it's fairly affluent. It is very mixed racially, and it is known as being the Beverly Hills for African-American movie and music stars. Mm. So when Beverly Hills was inaccessible to a lot of black entertainers, they made Baldwin Hills their home. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of soul and Motown influence specifically, I think in this record as well. And it's something I want to, I want to talk about too. Mm. Uh, I think that that's always been underlying. A lot of Oingo Boingo's best work is, is, you know, Danny Elfman's, love of of soul and like good big uh like 60s pop arrangements although yeah. at the time Elfin would have described himself as being quite anti 60s he <laughs> he felt a lot of the other bands at the time uh, that were bands uh, were his contemporaries, like the Go-Go's or X Uh Uh uh, owed a lot to sixties music. And Danny Elfin said that he liked those bands, but that he didn't want to retread something that he felt was somewhat morally bankrupt. (laughs) Uh (laughs) That was sort of, sort of early interviews with him. He said that kind of stuff, which I think is interesting. Um, Yeah. So at this point in the band's history, they had recorded three albums for the uh, IRS A and M label. Yep, and those albums were a little more rock oriented. Yeah, and, uh, and they were
1: different, but you can kind of hear it kind of fit in more with the IRS sound. sound there. for
0: sure, happened. and and very um, punchy horn yeah. arrangements, which were all due to Steve Bartek, who yeah, is a Danny Elpin's right-hand man in this band. And a
1: crazy good guitar player. My Cra- god, it's r-
0: wonderful. Yeah. yeah. One of, one of one of rock's best guitar players, Steve yeah. Bartek. And got his start uh playing flute and writing some songs for Strawberry Alarm Clock. Really? <laughs> yes, the 60s psychedelic <laughs> band when he was in his teens and he was in high school. Wow. Um yeah, which is which is pretty interesting. Uh-huh. And uh, Steve Bartek still works with Danny Elfman and basically is his orchestrator, right? Which is which is interesting. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so they had a bit more of a rock sound and definitely a bit more of like a influence by you know I'd say Madness or XTC kind of like sharp pop horn sound for those early records, right? And then they moved to. Uh, They moved to MCA Records, which is... And this was their first album under MCA. But Danny Elfman actually released a transitional solo record that is called So-Low Dash Solo, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which has every member of Oingo Boingo playing on it as session musicians. Right. But he wanted to release it under his own name specifically so that he could uh, experiment a little more and not uh, have fans... Expect another Oingo Boingo record.
1: Yeah, I think also I read something about like con, you know because yes. that was the
0: transitional
1: to help ease their way off of IRS and onto MCA.
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was it was a contractual it was a contractual move as well. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that has some of Danny Elfman's best songs on it. Uh-huh. Uh, so really, by the time that Dead Man's Party comes around, they clearly wanted to make a more commercial dance record. Uh-huh. And then they kind of inadvertently did, <laughs> yeah. Like because they never had a, a successful, they never had a, a successful career that was very big outside of the L.A. California area. And but even they were
1: comparatively this. I mean, this is a big album, but like, you know, it only ever went gold, and that was the biggest seller they ever had. You know.
0: Yes. Yeah. And they they were very well loved as a live band and as a halloween band. Yeah. You know, uh, which makes no. sense and, and we'll get into that because of their definitely the content of their songs It lends itself to that holiday. Um so they were very well loved locally, but they never really became a, you know, a successful band outside of that and they didn't tour a lot they didn't play a lot outside of Los Angeles, the and the, the California area. Um however, there is a very, very good concert from around this time on YouTube, if you're interested in them live at this time, that was at the Ritz in New York, which was one of the only times that they played. It's from 1986. It's one of the only times they played in, in our area. Um, yeah. So uh, they, they wanted to write stuff that was a little sharper, a little more dance-oriented. The tracks on this album, some of them are quite long, uh-huh. Longer than traditional pop songs, you know, up to six and seven minutes in length, and we 'll talk uh-huh. about that
1: uh-huh.
0: um let 's get into your song, Kyle, yeah. because this song, I would say, actually has a little more in similar with their earlier work, which which I want to talk about, but is still so uh-huh. squarely on this album. Yeah. so this is same man I was before uh let 's give it a little bit of a listen. <laughs> I see a groove in there. <laughs> so what drew you to, to talk about this one? I'm interested.
1: Yeah, so um, listening to this, uh, and I'm interested, I mean, you would know better than I do. I kind of, from their early catalog, I mostly just know the singles that and the videos that freaked me out uh, when I was watching VH1 Classic as a kid. Yeah, directed uh,
0: by Danny's brother, Richard Elfman. Oh my
1: god! It yeah. was so scary. This this Oingo Boingo really made me uncomfortable as a kid. I'm not I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs>
0: let, let, let's let's unpack that for a second. What, yeah. what made you uncomfortable about them?
1: Their music videos. I was uh, 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 and Danny Elfman is a weird looking man, and his uh, and now I can appreciate um, his performance style. Because I think I actually kind of do a lot of the same thing when I I perform. (laughs) With, like, creepy, huge, um, very excessive facial gestures and and neck straining. Yes. Um, (laughs) uh, But, like, when I was a kid, it freaked me the fuck out. And uh, specifically, um, the videos for, I mean... uh, uh, little girls yeah so creepy yeah so creepy famously creepy and private life would always come on VH1 classic and it really like scared me um
0: (laughs) yes very Uh, they were very into aesthetically like a German expressionist aesthetic yeah with big shadows huge shadows huge shadows angular sets cardboard sets yeah, uh, or, or sets that are, which is definitely something that I've, my aesthetic borrows from them in that lots of flat set work, which yeah. keeps coming back in the creative projects that I do. Um, I made yeah. a, I made a student film when I was uh, in film school that used uh, flat sets. And then my musical, I just finished yeah. was very intentionally uh, used all flat sets as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. It's it now I can appreciate it and think it's cool. Um, and also not to, before, I want to talk about the song, but sure. um, specifically also, I think what they did on this album, too, is they took their overt and unambiguous creepiness yes. that they had at the beginning and made it, like, campy and fun on this album.
0: Sure. So
1: that's why it was accessible, because it's still a weird-as-fuck album even though it's like their it's their version of like a pop their version of like pop accessibility is still freaky as fuck Um, (laughs) but uh yeah i think they did like they they turned their like creepiness into like something that was more palatable um but this song kind of um spoke to me because it's a the whole thing's a dance uh it's has a very dancey vibe but I this one is like oh this is a disco song.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um I love that like hard pulsating disco bass. It mm-hmm. still has that weird 80s like and specifically oingo boingo like bounciness mm-hmm. that bass. Um but it's still like a a hard driving um bass synth that is like right in the front. Um and also, just, like, the that, that disco sound, I thought it sounded, like, really modern. Like, well, modern in that, like, it reminded me of, like, mid-2000s, like, synth pop that I grew up listening to in high school, like. The Knife or La Tigra or LCA's yes. system. And I was like, wow, this was really, really forward thinking, this song. Even though it might not have fit perfectly with the rest of the album. I mean, it does, but it kind of stood out to me
0: as being like, whoa. I do think it's forward thinking. I agree with that. It's interesting. I think that this band at the time wasn't well regarded as a synth pop dance band. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of reviews from this time of oingo boingo and specifically of this album that are basically like what they're doing is nothing that new order and devo aren't doing better specifically Mm -hmm. is sort of who they talk about right uh however it is written from a really different perspective and there's an accessibility yeah specifically i'd say to the synth line in this song that is very you know that that influences is uh very apparent in bands like The Knife or mm-hmm. like Latigra for mm-hmm. sure, who definitely yep. grew up listening to this because they were weird kids. Right. You but also I mean? think the vocal Outsiders. melody
1: and you know all of I think it it really I, I listened to it and I was like this could be the knife. You
0: know? mm mm-hmm. No, I think that's I think that's I think that's true. And then lyrically yeah. <laughs> this is another you know I, I think that Elfman has always thought in cinematic terms and Mm -hmm. thinks quite visually for a lot of his songs, not all of them, but this one for sure, the chorus, uh, you know, two by two walking through the sand, uh, boys and girls, uh, you know, voices joined in song. Um, Mm -hmm. well, it kind of had
1: like this, like, uh eastern block like because it's also sung like to so it's
0: like yeah it's it's sort uh, of a chanting yeah yeah
1: it reminds me of like but I think a lot of band it reminds me of um that uh pet shop boys uh sound um what's the the one that they took from the village people um go west go yeah, west we've talked yeah. about
0: it on the show before young yes man. right
1: exactly yeah <laughs> so I think there was like a fun use of that like a uh, campy allusion to like um soviet eastern bloc propaganda like can you have the image of like an infinite number of like children walking two by two
0: yeah absolutely and you know the they the elfman's roots are eastern european uh-huh. um you know the his family they Jews, baby yeah they were jews uh his grandparents were were immigrants who settled in the la area and that's another musical influence that I think is uh throughout Danny Elfman's career, but definitely with his Oigo Boygo work as well, is there's a lot of like klezmer and Eastern European folk influences. Mm. You know, on this album, for sure the song No One Lives Forever is basically like a modified version of like a like a traditional sounding sort of klezmer jam.
1: Yeah. I yeah, it's like swing, like early twentieth century klezmer. Yeah, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they and they also were hugely influenced by, like, 20s and 30s hot jazz uh, as well. You know, Cab Calloway. All the Mystic Nights material is basically Cab Calloway covers. And they do a hell of a good job of all that stuff. Um, This is a great time to bring up that there's a movie... That's available on... I know, I, we
1: never got to watch it, but we'll, well, we'll, it
0: we'll watch it. We'll yeah. watch it at some point, yeah. And I've seen it many, many, many times. That's uh, called Forbidden Zone. That's basically Richard Elfman's attempt to capture what Mystic Knights was doing at the time. Because he was aware that Mystic Knights was dissolving and basically reforming as a rock band at the time. So he made this wonderfully surreal and beautiful and funny movie uh, called Forbidden Zone which you can stream on Night Flight Plus.
1: Yeah, thank you, yeah. Louie, for your password.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and everybody right now, while they're in and have a lot more time to be watching stuff, should be subscribing to Night Flight Plus. Yeah. It's very Kick the Jukebox endorsed. Oh my God, <laughs> big time. Yeah, big time. Yeah, um, there's also, like, with this song, just before we move on, uh, there's that wonderful part of it at the end where you know Danny Elfman is talking about how there's a voice inside his head that's saying everything you do is wrong.
1: Uh-huh. Everything you
0: so do is wrong. wrong. Yeah, <laughs> which is like I, I've always thought he writes from a very like cynical and frank place uh-huh. in in his writing, uh, and also that he himself sort of feels somewhat alienated, uh-huh. which uh, as a teenager really spoke to me.
1: Uh-huh. Which
0: which we'll get into. And then he modifies the last time that's sung and it's sung by like these wonderful, like female soul singer backups, Uh you know, and um, that I feel is the part that feels the most like soul Motown disco influence to me. Yeah. Song. Yeah. And I think it really drives the point home what you were saying, right. About Uh sort of the influences behind this. This is like really, really meant to be a dance track and it works really well in that, in that way. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, thanks for bringing that in.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, I know you picked a song
0: as well. I did, because that's the format of our show. And it's what <laughs> we always do. So uh, this is a track that is another sort of lesser known album track from this this album. Uh, it's called Thought I Heard Somebody Cry. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of Thought I Heard Somebody Cry. Oh, sorry. It's Sorry. It's called Heard Somebody Cry. The lyric is Thought I Heard Somebody Cry. Uh, Let's listen to a little bit of it. it. So this song is my current favorite from this album, which is interesting because, you know, I always certainly liked it, but as a younger listener, I gravitated towards the singles, which we'll talk about stay just another day, weird science, uh, and dead man's party. And we'll talk about the singles, but this song, I really love the way that it's, written uh Uh, and this this one i think is a little less visually written and it's the way he strings his his lyrics together in the verses are i think really interesting uh Uh, and i I wrote down some of the lyrics here Uh because i'm a (laughs) fanboy so so the second verse is my fave it's um the shoe is on the other foot the Uh glove is on the fist the fist is like a cannonball but it feels like a kiss so I think that's sort of interesting, sort of this isolating anatomy that uh-huh. he's doing there. And also um, sort of the different pieces of clothing that go on each piece of the anatomy. And then we've got, I got a bed that's real soft in a room that's always sad. This is peak Elfman. This is like, <laughs> this is like Danny Elfman lying in a bed in a German expressionist film nightmare. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, I thought I heard a window sigh i thought i heard somebody cry uh that's that's that um that's that verse and then it gets into this this great dance chorus yeah where the which very percussive and Mm -hmm. really really sharp Mm -hmm. and uh i think is i think it's one of the one of the most propulsive and grooviest things he's ever written (laughs) um But the lyrics are, you know, it isn't true. I am not the ghost without a soul. Uh, you know, stop, listen to my heart. You feel the beat, which mm-hmm. is so interesting because, like, I think that it's connecting the lyrics to the music in such a smart way. But it's really sort of from this place of sadness. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's so poppy and, and happy uh, musically, but... But the lyrics really are are pretty melancholy, for sure. Yeah, I think that's exactly what. um,
1: Yeah, that was my big takeaway too. It's like it it does sound on its face like this fun, upbeat, peppy song, but the lyrics and there's sort of a an energy of like um, this kind of like poignant energy throughout, um, even like musically and melodically. Um, And it's interesting too, I think, lyrically, since we're talking about the lyrics, that he kind of uses. Like, the whole album, just to clarify, kind of uses this, like, campy, um, Halloween-y death, like, Dia de los Muertos. Um, Oh, did we? Oh, no, I I thought we got frozen. Um, No, yeah, yeah, like, uh, this uh, energy of, uh, you know, this, like, really campy Halloween energy. Um, And he uses some of that uh, imagery in this song to make a really um, poignant... Uh, or paint a poignant picture about like loneliness and isolation and longing.
0: Yeah, and and it's interesting. I totally understand why people would think that their work and he and and what he was doing, songwriting wise, could veer into sort of the the you know the the under the umbrella of camp. Uh-huh. You know, but I gotta say, as a alienated teenager. Uh-huh. who, you know, was riding the bus out to rural Alberta every day, listening to this and other Oingo Boingo albums on his Discman, looking out over the Canadian prairie, the snowy Canadian prairie, and thinking there's only one person that's ever going to do this, and it's me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, this. his lyrics and, and the content uh, hit me in a way that I think are beyond sort of the the world of artifice. Uh Uh, And and the reason why I think they work so well for me is that I grew up watching a lot of old monster movies and science fiction movies, Uh just like Danny Elfman did. And he sort of used those tropes in a way to explore some really human feelings. Yeah. Um, you know, and feelings that sort of bind all of us, but in a way that a, a teenager like me could understand, you know? For
1: sure. No, I hear that.
0: Yeah. You know, and de- definitely that lyric, I am not the ghost without a soul, mm-hmm. you know? And then at the end as well, the the sting on this song, I think is really good lyric writing. Um, you know, the the final line of it is, I thought I heard somebody cry, which we've heard, during the entire song, uh, repeatedly, but then the final line is somebody might be me, uh-huh. you know, and it's like sort of connecting it, the, this sort of weird displacement where, you know, maybe you're, you're sort of viewing your emotions from somewhere else, but, you know, maybe it's been about you feeling alone all along, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. For um, sure. yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, but that being said, it's still like so fucking danceable, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like, like it definitely is meant to, to get you up off out of your chair and groove, you know? Yeah. I mean this
1: whole, um, record, uh, it has this creepiness. It has this poignancy. It has this depth, but at the end of the day, as many great dance records should be, um, or all of that being said, you know, a great dance records combine all of that with just, you know, get you up on your feet and having a blast.
0: But I do, I think for me, and I don't know if this is for you too, I think it, it might be, I do kind of like the thinky dance stuff the best. Yes, that's what I was saying, right. Exactly. right? Yeah, yes. you know, I do like this a little more than just traditional dance music where the lyrics are just a little more kind of, uh, you know, they're a little less obscure. But I would argue that a lot of the disco that we like does fall into this category of being a little more thinky because if you're really listening to the lyrics, a lot of them are also speaking to a real, you know, deep human condition, you know?
1: Sure.
0: Yeah. You know, like our episode about Aqua. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. (laughs) Although Aqua is a little, a little different, but. (laughs) We're not, we're, we're not
1: um, discriminating against or excluding the less thinky.
0: Yeah, I'm yeah. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far to call Aqua thinky. I'm not yeah. going to do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> I love them so much, but I wouldn't yeah. be like, yeah, I really have a good think when I listen to Aquarium, <laughs> you yeah. know? But I do have a good think when I listen to uh, Dead Man's Party and have been, you know, it, it always brings up something interesting uh, right. content-wise, despite the fact that I've been listening to this album now for like, you know, really about 25 years of my life or so. Yeah. yeah.
1: For sure.
0: So, yeah. So, uh, our the last song that we're going to talk about today, when it comes to uh, this album, is uh, their third single, which is the title track, Dead Man's Party. It's their third single from the album. The other two singles before this were Weird Science, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was written for the John Hughes film of the same name. Yes. A lot of these songs, that's a lot of the way Danny writes, and Weird Science is uh one of those songs was written in his car driving you know through to his home uh in in the t- uh Topanga Canyon uh of the LA area and apparently you know in research I learned this and this doesn't surprise me he wrote all of Batman the Batman score the main Batman theme on a plane <laughs> really and he felt embarrassed about singing into a tape recorder so he kept going to the bathroom <laughs> <laughs> uh and the stewardesses were worried about him and he was like no i'm fine and they were like why do you keep going to the bathroom every 10 minutes it's uh and then he just had snippets of it and was they played the beatles song yesterday when they landed and he was like oh i really hope this recorded because otherwise i'm gonna lose all of this because now yesterday's just stuck in my head like so that's sort of the sort of writer he is and a lot of these songs i think were written like in transit Mm. I think that's sort of how he does a lot of his work, which I think is really, uh, there's a, it, it lends the songs to a certain type of feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so weird science, uh, which he feels is not representative of the rest of the band's style. I was going to say he, anytime I've heard him talk about this song
1: in any way, he is, um, he's not too thrilled.
0: Well, you know, he, I think that what happened with Weird Science of Fortune is I think it's actually a great song. And I think it's yeah. actually pretty good Ongo like, a song and pretty right. representative of a lot of what makes them such a fun band. But uh, they were incredibly busy at the time of the music videos filming. Yeah. And they didn't have any creative input into it. Yes. And it wasn't directed by his brother. So they just sort of showed up on set and did what they were told and they were very embarrassed by the video and then the video showed up on Beavis and Butthead (laughs) in the early 90s making fun of it and it made him really embarrassed. He was really upset about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is understandable understandable but also
1: it's like i mean it's a testament to him it's like something that no one like no one remembers whatever episode of beavis and butthead that is but it's like it's dogged him for 25 years
0: totally <laughs> but it also just shows how he's like just like the rest of us just sort of a sensitive artist you sensitive
1: know? and and probably very particular and precise about his art
0: very particular precise about his art another story that i read that pertains to the Batman score, which was just a few years after this album. Uh, And I didn't want this just to be a Danny Elfman wank fest, but I do think (laughs) it's worth noting is the producer of Batman, John Peters wanted Danny Elfman to collaborate with Prince on the score of the film.
1: Uh
0: Uh, And then Prince ended up contributing some really good songs to, to the film. And Danny Elfman had nothing against Prince. He loved Prince uh, Prince's music, but was very concerned about working with him because it's not the way he likes to collaborate. Uh And he also felt like that film needed a large orchestral sort of ethereal booming score. Uh Um, So he held out and he was like, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to compose with Prince. You can find someone else to do that. I won't do it. And uh, you know, he had a lot of regret around that. He thought, you know, maybe I'm throwing away a huge career opportunity. Uh, And then they relented and allowed him to compose this orchestral score that then used Prince's songs within the the score. And uh, that ended up being just like a huge artistic success for him and and led to like the next like 30 years of his work was really because of that score being like so iconic and definitive Mm -hmm. for like representing him and what he could do. Uh, So he is particular, and he's stubborn, and uh, I think it's actually served him really well. And I haven't heard any any stories about him being particularly egotistical either. He has a pretty good relationship with everybody else in this band. He still works with Steve Bartek all the Mm -hmm. time as his orchestrator, and then he uses a lot of the people from Oingo Boingo as musicians for a lot of his score work. And the main reason why they called it quits, why they're not uh, playing together anymore is because several of them, including Elfman have suffered hearing loss Yeah, and they don't want to exacerbate their hearing loss by being in a rock band. Right. Um, But Elfman has performed in the last few years with orchestral accompaniment doing his stuff from nightmare before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And I've seen him do this twice now. And I'm very lucky that I've gone to see Danny Elfman perform because it's like such a rarity that he is doing anything. Right. And uh he is absolutely still one of the most singularly unique, strange, exciting, you know, uh really, lively he, performers. He still does it? I mean, so the first time I saw him, he sang a bunch of his stuff from Nightmare Before Christmas. And then as a little Bonus at the end of the show, he sang Oogie Boogie's song, which is basically his Cab Calloway sound-alike song. Mm-hmm. And that felt almost like being back at a Mystic Nights performance. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was just really special and it felt important. Yeah. And then he did it again. Yeah, and he's, he's very animated. He's <laughs> so strange. He's yeah. clearly having such a great time as right. well. Uh, and after a Hollywood Bowl performance, Nightmare Before Christmas, a few years ago, uh, he played Dead Man's Party for the first time with Steve Bartek with an orchestra oh, really? for oh, the wow. first time in 20 years, 20 years to the day That's cool. since they had last performed it. So let's talk about this song. It is a Halloween classic.
1: <laughs> yes, for sure.
0: Uh, it is. Um, it's Oigo Boigo with their spooky best. <laughs> right. And I'd say this—if we're going to call it campy—this is their campiest. It is right? campy. It is. It is silly. It's fun. It. It's about a a party for the dead. <laughs> and the <laughs> so dead man's party. Title if you will. It, huh? Dead man's party. Yeah. <laughs> um. We listen yeah. yeah, yeah huh? Did we yeah, have let's we listen, listen to a little bit of it? Yeah. Let's listen to it. Cool. <laughs> Awesome! Yeah, so I just want to highlight, first of all, this is definitely one of the best songs in their whole catalog that highlights those punchy horns that yeah. are so part of their sound, uh, which definitely ska influenced, but are sort of doing a different thing, right? Than, like, a traditional ska band? Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds a
1: bit ska-esque, um, definitely with the... Really punchy horns coming in at like very precise moments. It feels like a soul, uh, kind of like a soul Motown kind of um, horn section too. Yeah, or like yeah. a muscle shoals, muscle yeah, yeah
0: muscle shoals for sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so much more. I mean, this is the new wave influence. So right. much more tight and angular. Right. This song does not have like a swing. This song right. has like a drive to it, right?
1: Angular is exactly right.
0: Yeah, you know, and I feel like I describe ninety percent of the music that uh, we cover on Kick the Jukebox is angular. Yeah, <laughs> like I feel yeah, like yeah. it's a real like trope of mine as a you know as a sort of a as a critic and musicologist. But like this is <laughs> angular, right? Like, Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's yeah. it's it's spooky it is spooky. There's a, there's an eeriness to it. it. It comes from, I think, I think that where the horns come in mixed with the percussion is somewhat like, uh, it sort of throws you off a little bit. Uh-huh. It's, it's, you know, I think that the horns are coming in on the downbeat, uh-huh. which I think is interesting. Um, and, uh, this one, the lyrics are very descriptive, I think in a way that's pretty cinematic you know mm-hmm. yeah. like I think that this is sort of describing uh, a lost Betty Boop cartoon that was never made yeah know? for sure yeah you know uh, got my best suit and my tie shiny silver dollar on either eye Yeah. hear the chauffeur coming to my door says there's room for maybe just one more mm-hmm. I think all of that stuff is I love how celebratory this is of, of dealing with concepts of death and dying you know uh-huh. Uh-huh. and this does sort of you know we're currently experiencing societally you know our own kind of like weird like i call this a mini apocalypse right For and sure. uh you know i was always hoping that when i would experience an apocalypse it would be like fun like this song is <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. i was kind of expecting just a lot of destruction and then we'd all end up at a party like this, and this is how it would look and how it would feel as a song like this. And instead, I really
1: hope this is uh, the afterlife.
0: Well, yeah, you know, and I, I think that I think that for me, this will be the afterlife. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> this is my this is my heaven is a is yeah. a dead man's party, and everybody's invited, and it's incredibly fun, but also like somewhat pragmatic and grim. You know, mm-hmm, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and like, um, and that—that's uh, always something that I've always really loved about this band is that I think that they revel in being incredibly lively while not shirking away from the fact that they—they they really do address like a lot of sort of grim facts of life that make make us all very human, uh-huh. you know. And that's definitely what the song "No One Lives Forever" is is all about as well. Sure. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, so definitely, you know, this is a song you could sort of ignore the lyrics if you just put it on, like, a Halloween mix. Uh-huh. And if you do put on a Halloween mix, I do recommend the far superior Boingo Alive version of this song that starts with, <laughs> it starts with the horns, as opposed nice. to the horns coming in uh, sort of subtly, the way they do on this version of it. Um, but, you know, that being said, if you really sit and listen to it, like, there's still a lot going on cerebrally <laughs> with this.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's just a very complex arrangement as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's very, very complex, absolutely. Which is all their stuff, you mm-hmm. know, for sure. Yeah, you know, and if you've liked what you've heard from them, you know, over the course of this um, little chat that we've had, uh, of course, you know, I recommend all of their catalog and stuff, but I also would just recommend looking up live uh, live footage of them. I would say that they are a band that are more interesting live than than in the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, especially because just seeing the way all the parts are played live and the uh, you know the intertwining of this band it's it's really pretty remarkable. And then also Danny Elfman in his trademark wife feeder <laughs> and with his suspenders. shock of red hair and suspenders with his scary facial expressions. Yeah, he he really a singular and unique performer if there ever was one.
1: For
0: sure. <laughs> yeah. Any, any final notes about, about, about this, this album?
1: I mean, great band. One of those bands kind of like XTC where it's like, I don't know how you pull this off and make it catchy. Cause it's just, I don't get how they make it accessible. Cause it seems so, um, like, it, i just you know i just don't get it i just don't know how they pull it off it's so complex and so um unique that uh it's just amazing to listen to.
0: yeah yeah danny elfman definitely had a lot of help with oingo boingo and i w- don't think that the band would have been what they were without all the other members who so i think in themselves have really really interesting careers um you know, uh, the, their drummer, Johnny Vatos Hernandez, who uh, he was like, he was one of the band members for like Midnight Special in the 70s. Oh, really? Yeah. So like he has an interesting, you know, he had sort of an interesting session backup career. And we already talked about um, Steve Bartek, who, you know, comes from this world of psychedelia and all that. And um, but th- I, I would argue that this is a band where. This is Danny Elfman's like very unique vision and take on the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one of the reasons why they're not as popular as some other bands that we've covered is because they hit a really specific segment of the population Mm -hmm. in a specific way. And in this case, I'm really talking about those like weird alien, geeky, Mm -hmm. geeky kids who you know used monster movies to figure out their place in the world and yeah. uh that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. So so I'm I'm really thankful for for Oingo Boingo and I'm thankful that I found them at the time I found them and they kind of you know listening to their stuff feeling so alone none of my friends in high school cared about me talking about this band. Nobody wanted uh-huh. to talk with me about Oingo Boingo and I think that listening to the time they kind of offered an escape and they offered that there was going to be a, a community of people at some point who would care about the same stuff that I would. And uh, they were right about that.
1: <laughs> That's nice. And I'm Thank here. you, Kyle.
0: Yeah. And then it, be, it became you. It's you, Kyle. <laughs> well, this has been another, we're giving each other like power fists through, through zoom. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> Well, this is another episode of Kick the Jukebox. Uh, thank you so much for listening. You know, if you want to support us, hey, you know, uh, my Venmo is at louis4711. Kyle, your Venmo, it's a... Uh... It's kyle-gordon-2. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, right now, throw us a few bucks. It'll just help with, like, the hosting of this and oh yeah, uh, the fact that we're working on it. And, uh, you know, follow us on social media. We have a brand new website www.kickthejukebox.com You can find all our old episodes there And information about us And you can get in touch with us that way uh, Some friends of mine actually have been requesting Albums for us to cover So Kyle, we'll yeah, talk about that Yeah, we should definitely that.
1: start taking uh, recommendations
0: Yeah, so if there's anything you want us to cover Or if you want to come on and guest with us And talk about an album you really love uh-huh. You know, we're all ears
1: Yep for sure
0: well thank you for listening i'm louis perlman and i'm kyle gordon and uh we'll see you around like a record (laughs) kick the jukebox is so much fun kyle and louis are number one kick the jukebox kicking a rhyme talking about music all the time oh yeah